Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your hosts, Rick Lawrence and Becky Hodges, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. Welcome to Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, Episode 3, brought to you by Lifetree at JesusCenteredLife.com. Our topic for today's episode is shame and how Jesus desperately wants to free the captives of shame, to take shame away like it was a weed planted in your soul. So if you're a new listener, my name is Rick. I'm here with my co-host and friend, Becky. Hello. Hello, Becky. So the question is, the big question here is, is shame universal? And I would say, honest people would say, yes. Yes, it is. Shame is not the guilt that you feel for having done something bad. Shame is a fundamental feeling of guilt that there's not, not I did something bad, but I am bad at some level. And uh, I think it is universal. It's just a matter of whether we're honest enough to admit what's down there, <laughs> down there in the deeps. So today we're going to jump right into a story of Jesus that involves shame, but maybe you never thought about this story involving shame. It might come as a surprise to you that this story is really about shame in the end. You probably heard it many times over, but today we're going to slow down, pay better attention to Jesus, zoom in to this. So here's the setup, a man from the leader in the synagogue, and there came a man named Jairus, and he was an official of the synagogue. And he fell at Jesus' feet and began to implore him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. But as he went, the crowds were pressing against him. So, so here, to set this scene up, so Jesus is being asked by a religious leader from the synagogue, not typically best friends material for Jesus, they typically were his enemies, but his daughter is dying, so he's desperate, so he comes to Jesus and begs him to come and heal his daughter, which is a remarkable thing. She's dying, and he's asking Jesus to bring to life his dying daughter. So this is where Jesus is headed right now. It's important to understand he was on his way somewhere. And he was in a hurry, because think about this father. My daughter's dying. Hurry up, Jesus. So he's in a hurry. So And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone, came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak, and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. And Jesus said, Who's the one who touched me? And while they were all denying it, Peter said, "Uh, Master, the people are crowding and pressing in on you. So Peter's basically saying, Jesus, everyone's touching you. (laughs) What are you talking about? But Jesus said, Someone did touch me, for I was aware that power had gone out of me. Now when the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell down before him, and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him, and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So this story, which we commonly think is a story about a woman who has hemorrhage, and in that culture, 
that means that she was an outcast. Um, she was not uh, allowed into the temple uh, courts because of this, because she was unclean. So this woman who had had this hemorrhage for 12 years and had sought healing in so many different ways and just couldn't get it, she's desperate. She's so desperate, she doesn't even want to literally ask Jesus. She just sneaks up behind him and touches his cloak, thinking, if I just touch this man, maybe I'll be healed. Um, So she's in a crowded place because, again, Peter is saying, Jesus, there's people all around you touching you. So there's a big crowd here. They're all following Jesus, and Jesus stops in the middle of this crowd. He could have now. He could have let her slink away into the fringes of the crowd. He could have just let it happen. She she's healed. She touched him, but he doesn't. He says, "No, no, no. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Somebody touched me. I'm aware that power's gone out of me, and I'm not leaving until the, that person presents themselves." Basically, is what he's saying. And so the woman says she re- recognizes she she can't escape notice that's what it says and so she comes and trembling falls down before him and declares what's wrong with her and what just happened to her so what's really going on here i think what's going on here is something that goes on all the time with jesus this is just so much like jesus there's multiple things going on one he has compassion for her physical ailment and she finds healing in him but he has bigger fish to fry. There is something else going on here that he wants even more than that, and that's why he does something that you or I wouldn't do. We would let this woman, who feels so much shame and guilt over her situation, we would let her slink away. We would not put a spotlight on her in a crowd and say, but what was wrong with you? Tell your story. So what was in the darkness is dragged into the light and Jesus does this on purpose. The woman comes before him trembling. Why is she trembling? Because what was in the dark is about to be revealed in the light around everyone, and she feels shame about it. So today we're going to talk about um, the power of shame in our life, and really at its root, the power of shame in our life has the power to form our identity. We, We see ourselves through the lens of shame. We describe ourselves through the lens of shame, and this is a much deeper thing to deal with than just the guilt we feel of having done something wrong, and that's what Jesus is after in this woman's life, and that's what he's after in our life. So, Becky, you have—let's uh, let's start with you. Um, it sounds funny to say that Becky and I are going to tell our own stories of shame today, but that's what we're going to do. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about the identity-forming power of shame in real life. So um, let's have let's have Becky start first. So this story is so powerful. I just I love that Jesus just could not he could not leave this situation without just saying, "Daughter, you're free from this." And um, but but there's a lot of things on earth that we will um, that are medical or maybe they're ailments. Um, that we may not be healed from. We may not be healed from, but he desperately still wants to heal our shame from them. And so, of course, the one of the first ones that came to mind was body image. And this is probably a predominantly female issue, but there are men who have um, body image issues. 
And you don't even have to be overweight to have a body image issue. Um, a body image issue is just you feel ashamed about the way that you look. Um, and you think it's something that you need to fix. And that shame, you know, you can see it, um, you can see it work for for good because sometimes your shame can push you so hard that you do everything in your power to lose a ton of weight and Maybe you um, get involved in, in tons of physical activity and that shame just continues to drive you towards that performance. Uh, oh, guess what? That if you just take a look around at the high achievers, the high performers, um, a lot of them are driven by shame. Listen to any great athlete, describe what motivates them, and they'll often use language that's about their shame. Like, I got to prove this to yeah. someone. And I have a friend who um, she felt like she was o o overweight um, in her teens, and that shame um, really drove her. And now she's actually um, an incredible athlete. She she is like a sports-sponsored um, athlete, and she constantly posts at, at the end of her you know challenges that she um, does, she'll post a picture of herself um, when she was overweight. And she talks about um, how, you know, this is what's driving me towards that. And it, it hurts my heart a little bit because I think that even though she's, she has done an amazing um, job of just being so self-disciplined towards, towards this, I can see that her shame um, for that is still, is still there and driving her. Let's just stop for a second and make the connection back to the story we just explored. So... You could say in a story like that, or with any high-achieving person who's who's driven th in this way, um, well, problem solved. Mm -hmm. They lost their weight. Good job. They're they're fit. Um, everything's good. I admire you. Yeah. So the woman's is issue of blood or hemorrhage was stopped by Jesus in the moment she touched his cloak, but he wasn't done with her yet. Mm -hmm. Get that? That he wasn't done with her yet. Her problem was solved, but her problem wasn't solved yet. He had deeper things going on here that he wanted to get get at with her. So another thing that I deal in shame with is that I am infertile. Um, so my husband and I are unable to have kids naturally. Um, that was a two-year journey of just a lot of pain, and I talk about it um, on uh, They Say Podcast if you ever want to go over there and listen to my story. Um, I'm happy to share it with people. Um, but one of the things is um, I have another friend who is also infertile, and and together we have healed, um, and together we have really come out and talked a lot about this issue together. Um, and so oftentimes we check in, like, how are things going? What what are the things that you're dealing with? And um, I was on a walk with her this week, and she she said to me, um, Jesus is is speaking this word over me, and oftentimes in the Bible. Um, God would speak words over people that didn't make any sense. So he told Abraham he's the father of nations and he couldn't have children. Um, and God was speaking this word fertile into her life. So here she is, she's infertile, and he's been speaking to her that she is fertile ground, that the things in her life bring life, um, and that he wants to heal her heart of being infertile by, by speaking this word over her. And so that to me is such a great example of God isn't promising to fix her, her medical problem, her physical problem, but he's saying, I'm going to fix the heart problem that you're dealing with. Hmm. So Becky, when we've been talking about this, um, we've compared shame to like a boulder in your soul. 
So if your soul is is like a stream, there's a big boulder planted in the middle of it, and the stream has to go around the boulder. Um, and shame is like that. It it forms you. It forms the course of your life. You learn to adjust to the boulder in your soul, and and your whole personality then forms around that and morphs to it. Um, and even when the boulder is plucked up out of the stream, the stream has been running in its rut for so long that that's the only course it knows. So now it's free. The flow could go through where the boulder used to be, but it doesn't mm -hmm. because we're so familiar with it. And this is really the work of Jesus in our life. He first plucks the boulder. That's the easy part, to start to expose what the boulder is and to begin to pluck it out of your life. But then what do you do with the current of your life, how your identity has been formed around that thing in your life? This is really his redemptive passion in our life. When he says, I have come to set captives free, this is what he's talking about. Mm -hmm. The captivity, it's our captivity to the way of life we've learned that has adjusted to the lie that, ha that has been resting there at the center of our soul. This is what he wants to redeem and reclaim. So, you know, from, from my life, there's so many things I could share. Uh, I, I grew up, I'm not going to go into the details of why, but I grew up believing kind of to the core of my being as a little kid that, um, I, that I had nothing where my heart was supposed to be, that I was a nothing. So I grew up embracing this. This was my boulder in the stream. So my whole life was constructed to, to account for this reality that I knew I was nothing. I had nothing where my soul was supposed to be. So uh, I was very good at, um, uh, like what kids will say, faking it till you make it. Um, I faked my way through life as best I could. Now, I wouldn't have said that I'm faking it, but somewhere deep inside I knew that I was. And so that's that's how I grew up, and that that continued into adulthood. And, and now it's like having PTSD, stuff triggers that feeling of that you're nothing. Um, so uh, I've written a lot of books um, in my life. Uh, most of them before six or seven years ago were in the youth ministry world, because that's my world. Um, and I wrote a lot of books for that world. It was pretty easy to do. I, it, based on my role and position, it wasn't that hard to write books and get them published in that world. And it's a, it's a small world, the youth ministry world. But about seven or eight years ago, um, Jesus began to lean in on me, for, at first through my wife, and then just from every direction. And the, the leaning was, Rick, why don't you start writing for a wider audience than just the youth ministry audience? And, and I resisted it. I didn't want to do it, and I had all kinds of reasons. I told my wife, it's, uh, you know, I'd have to get an agent if I was going to do that, and um, I'd have to find the time to write a significant book like that, and I don't have any time. And, um, but really, all of those were excuses to cover the reality, which was I was terrified to write outside of my safe zone, to risk writing something for a wider group of people. I was terrified about that I wouldn't have really anything of value to give once I was exposed for not having anything of value to give outside of my little area of youth ministry. So underneath it all, I was terrified, but I wouldn't admit that. I didn't even know, I maybe I didn't even know that that's where the fear came from. But in the end, it was so clear that Jesus was leaning on me to do this, that I, I did get an agent, and I did get a two-book contract 
with a publisher, a major publisher, um, not just one book, two books. Whoa, wow, how could this happen? The first book that I wrote for them was called Sifted, um, and I wrote most of that at a monastery in the mountains of Colorado. Um, I, would, I went there three or four times and spent three or four days each time at this very quiet, remote location. And the, the very first time I went there to start writing this book, Sifted, which was um, about the role of pain in our life and how Jesus uses the ugliness of pain to make us beautiful, um, the very first night I was there, I was coming back from a, a, a middle-of-the-night thing, a little service that they have in the middle of the night at the monastery. I was driving the mile back to where I was staying at this little hermitage on, on the monastery's grounds, and it's pitch black. Um, there's wildlife around. Um, there, there's not a sound that you can hear in the entire valley, and I was gripped by fear. I was terrified inside, and I didn't know why. I didn't even want to get out of my car and go back into the hermitage. And um, so I sat in my car, um, just wondering why I was so afraid, and Jesus spoke to me in that moment. And what he said was, Rick, I'd like for you to find out what you can do when you push, your, push the accelerator to the floor on your talent with this book. I want you to go all in, and let's see what happens. And suddenly the fear and terror that I had just dissipated. I knew that what I was really terrified was finding out one more time that I was really a nothing. So what Jesus was saying is, push your accelerator to the floor, Rick. Let's see what happens. And I did. It took me nine months to write it. Um, it, was, it in the end, I, I felt it was a work of art, um, and I was very uh, proud of this book. It was released. Um, it had um, some immediate fans, people that uh, really resonated with its message. Um, it still to this day, I get many, many stories of people who it's changed their lives to have read this book, but the book didn't sell well. And when that reality started creeping in, oh, this book isn't selling well, and it's not going to sell well, then something deeper got accessed in me. And then all of this sense of shame, oh yeah, of course it's not selling well. Of course it's not. Even if it's a good book, it's your book, Rick. Therefore, um, it's going. of course failure is what's going to happen out of this. All of these voices that come into play then that we have to wrestle. And um, at the end of this journey, after I wrote the second book uh, called Shrewd, which also I was quite proud of and also didn't sell well, at that point, then I I was on a walk around our neighborhood, and I just shook my fist at God, essentially like a little toddler, and said, I'm not doing this anymore. You know, I, I, I'm stopping. I'm, ne- I'm never going to write another book. I can't handle this exposure, all the stuff that's coming up in me. So I shook my fist at him and said, I'm done. And two weeks later, I was walking around the neighborhood again, and into that place, I kind of stamped my feet and said, I'm not going to do it. Uh, Jesus knocked me off my uh, feet. And basically what he did was he laughed. He said, you know that thing you said a couple weeks ago, Rick? And then he just laughed. He said, I I don't believe you, essentially. I don't think you can lay down what I've given you to do. And I realized in that moment, something changed in me. And I went from a place of being entwined in my identity, that suddenly this nothing identity had been exposed in me, to this place of simple obedience. So 
I said back to him, okay, if this is the journey you want me to go on to continue to write, then that's up to you to make that happen because I've done my best and nobody is going to publish my next book <laughs> based on these two. And uh, um, so I, I just said, okay, I, I apologize and repent for being a toddler and shaking my fist at you. And all I really want is you. And all I really want is to do what you want me to do. And if that means you're asking me to do this, but I never again write, then that's up to you. And three weeks later, I had a new book contract, the largest one I'd ever gotten, which was crazy. It was absolutely crazy that anybody would do that. Um, so this is not a formula like, oh, once you get to there, then look, everything opens up for you. Um, it's just that he insisted that he has called me to do this, and it doesn't really matter what the results are in his mind. And through this process, he surfaced something very deep in me that needed to get surfaced. So it, he dragged something from the dark into the light, and that's really what he was after. That's what he was after with this woman in the middle of the street. Why would, I, why would he ask me to push my accelerator to the floor and do something that was more vulnerable than I'd ever done, and put myself out there only to be exposed in the light as a failure. Well, the woman could have asked the same question. Why? Why Why would you stop and call me out in the middle of this crowd? Well, what is he after? He wants that weed, that boulder in my soul. He wants the weed plucked. He wants the boulder moved, because he wants nothing higher than my freedom and your freedom. So uh, these stories, our stories, all of our stories um, in life, really, I think, orbit around two questions that are central questions. This is what I write about in The Jesus-Centered Life. These two questions are, who do I say Jesus is, and who does Jesus say I am? And they're embedded in this encounter Jesus had with Peter when uh, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say I am? Peter steps up and says, you're the Messiah, the, the Christ, He's the first person to publicly say that. And then Jesus immediately turns around and says, and you know who you are, Peter? Now that you've named me, let me name you. Your, your real name is Petros. You're the rock. Your name isn't really Simon. It's Peter. And, and this is what that name means. Here's what your identity is. So this interplay, this dance between these two questions, as we pursue Jesus to, to understand and taste his heart, in, in response, in this conversation we have with him, he's also pursuing us, and his intention is to identify us, to tell us the truth about who we are. This is his end game. He wants us, in the end, to agree with him about who we really are, and this is his mission in our lives. So um, because our life revolves around these two questions, we're not going to really, you know, we've per we're going to continue to pursue both through mm -hmm. this podcast, and mm -hmm. we've done a lot of the first one so far. Now let's let's just Becky and I are just going to transition into uh, the second question: Who do I? Who does Jesus say we are? Um, how how can this come about? How can we open ourselves to having Him re-identify us and then agree with Him? And how can we also participate with Him in helping others? to come to a truthful understanding of their own identity. Before so. we get into that, I do want to mention one that wasn't a personal struggle for us, but um, that several people said you have to talk about this, and that's 
addiction, um, mm. whether that is to alcohol or drugs or pornography or sex. Um, and we get lots of, of requests from people um, through Jesus Centered Life that tell us that they are they are struggling with these things. Um, and so we just wanted to say that, you know, um, Alcoholics Anonymous and some of these other support groups, what they are designed to do is to deal with your heart issue and also to give you a safe place that you can be in the light. And so if that is something that you are struggling with, if those are one of one of the things that is going to be um, kind of uh, come up as a, a result of, of um, listening to this, we really um, would employ that you that you find one of those organizations and get the help that you need in the light. Absolutely. And we'll talk about that uh, in, a, in a different way in just a moment, too, as, as far as a, a pragmatic place you can go to with this. Um, so, but why don't, you, why don't you share a little bit first about um, how this all hits you, Becky, and, and, and what a uh, pragmatic pathway out of this can be. So one of the things that I do, um, especially when I just feel like I'm just in the mud and I don't know where life is going or wh- how um, to deal with my own issues is I focus on God's promises. And if you've never done this before, um, it's it's called a promise study. In fact, it, you can even search um, on the internet for God's promises. There's like apps and all kinds of websites that kind of summarize them for you. But if you if you're like me and you like getting into your Bible, one of the things that I'll do is just go through a chapter. I would suggest starting with with the Psalms um, and because there's so many promises in there, and just go through, take some index cards, and just write down promises that you find, and just put them up around um, in places that you see, and focus in on them, because those promises actually tell you a lot about who you are, and who God says that you are, Um, and so they really help to heal my heart when I'm in a place of pain. That's good. So um, one of the things I've talked to a number of people about, even in advance of our time today is I, I, you know, people said, what are you going to do your next podcast on? Oh, we're going to do it on shame. <laughs> kind of opens up the conversation. That or, sounds fun. Or closes it, one of the two. But um, uh, one of the things I've realized that's a, a common thread in these conversations with people is um, we know that shame thrives in the dark. It's like a plant that only really grows when it's dark. So um, then the antidote to that is to get it into the light. So, yeah, right, easier said than done. You want my shame to be in the light. Well, this is, going back to the story with Jesus, with the woman in the, in the street, this is essentially what he does. He, he drags a d- thing that's in the darkness into the light. So it's imperative that we live in the light. It's imperative that we get what's in the dark inside of us out to someone. Now, there are, there are groups, like recovery groups, that exist to be a safe place for us to bring our what's in the dark into the light. And that's a safe place because everyone agrees on the boundaries around that group. The same is true in a counselor relationship. If you go, both Becky and I have been to see counselors, and we both know from personal experience that a, in a counselor situation, that, that's why that exists. It's supposed to be a safe place to get what's in the dark into the light. But what about in your everyday life? What about... Um, in the, in the details of your life with your friends and at work and at home, how do you live in the light so that shame is not allowed a place to grow and thrive in your life? And that's easier said than done. The, the part of this that's crucial is to find people 
that can handle what's in your dark. Um, and, uh, you know, as, as we've talked about this, that how do you do that? You know, how do you find those people? I mean, maybe you could talk just for a second, Becky, about how, how you've found those people. So I have um, <clears throat> just a real, we'll probably get to some of these things, but my, my past is not, um, it is not white and clean. There's lots of, <laughs> there's lots of bumpy things there. And I have a family that's complicated. And so sometimes just my normal life sounds a little shocking. You know, like, yeah, that just happened to me by my mother and, and it's, it's shocking. And so one of the ways that I have found is that if find someone who's not shocked by your honesty, um, and also that is a safe place that, you know, that they would never tell anyone else, um, what you have said, they would never gossip afterwards. Um, and then also who isn't going to, um, try and fix the problem for you. That's a, another big one that they just want to listen and ask questions and give you encouragement, but they're not here to fix you or shame you even further into this. And the way you you discover this is you have to risk a little bit. Mm-hmm. You have to you have to reveal some part of that what's in the dark, some part of that you feel confident enough to haul out there and see what happens when they respond. So so you're experimenting with people who can handle what's in the dark? Mm-hmm. And you urge your way forward because this is a very vulnerable thing. But I, I think most people live their whole lives without ever someone really seeing who they are or for who they are and seeing not just what we are hiding in the dark, but the treasure that's inside each of, each of us. We live our whole lives without people paying that kind of attention to us so that they would see that. But we can find those people if we will risk a little bit, and and then you know, as you risk, oh, this person is safe or not. I met a guy last night in the hallway of my daughter's school on uh, back to school night, and he asked me kind of a, a good question, and I started to respond, and I recognized because of the way he responded, he was about to teach me. He was about he was about to show me again why he was further along the path than I was, and inside you know then, oh, I don't share. I don't share my pearls before swine, is what Jesus yeah, said. Yeah. Sorry to call that guy a swine, but but what Jesus was trying to point out is you, you're aware of who you're sharing with. You're aware of who in your show, showing your treasure to, so you find out, is this person the kind of person that can handle this? And I love what you just said. They're not, they're not going to respond by trying to fix you, and they're not going to respond by being shocked or embarrassed or uncomfortable about your darkness. They can hear your darkness. And then you can udge your way a little bit more forward. And we can do that on behalf of others. We can be that person for others. We can be that person who can hear whatever they have to share and not immediately try to fix it and not be shocked by it, but hear it. Um, that, that alone is a tremendous gift. And in the context of them sharing that darkness, us being a good mirror for them to mirror back what we see the, the beauty out of ugly that we see Jesus doing in their life and proactively mirror, mirroring that back to them helps to undergird their true identity. So another way that you can um, see who you are um, to Jesus is to pay attention to the things that he gifted you in. Um, and those can be, you know, maybe you're very good at organization or maybe um, you're a leader um, or you're a speaker or you're a writer 
Um, but you can pay attention to the things that he, um, he made you to be, and then you can give them to him. You say, Jesus, you made me this. What do you want to do with that? Um, and not just use it for yourself, but to use it for what he wants to do. And the more you do that, the more he's going to unlock all of these different parts of you that you didn't even know were there. Yeah, and we're, let's let's leave you with this one. Um, so, uh, at the one of the lowest points of my adult life, when I was desperate to be rescued out of a, 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 a very wrenching situation in my early marriage, where all of the dysfunction that both my wife and I brought into the marriage had sort of exploded into, uh oh, maybe we're going to get separated here. Maybe maybe this marriage is not going to work. And I was at a, a conference where I was speaking, and my picture was on the, you know, on the promotional stuff. And and here I was in the middle of this happening back home, and I I didn't want to talk to anyone. I didn't want to see anyone. Um, I I was just full of shame um, over what was happening to me. And Jesus called me into an empty workshop room that was dark, um, and said, "I have something to say to you." And I went into this room, and I had a legal pad and a pen. And he said, just listen and write down what I say to you. I mean, this I know this sounds funky, but it doesn't happen every day, but it happened then. And all Jesus did was describe me. I just wrote down his description of me. I wrote about this in the Jesus-centered life. You can see the whole story, exactly what he said to me. But he just described me, described my heart, described the beauty that he saw in me, and he used such personal language and metaphors that... Um, it upended me and allowed me to walk through this very dark time in my life because he had identified me. And out of this now, I've spent the last 15 years helping people um, set the environment for what happened to me that, so that it can happen to them. And it's very, it's, it's very simple. It's not a formula. You can't control this. You can just set the environment for it. So all you really do is find a quiet place where you feel safe, that you're not going to be interrupted, uh, and it's quiet, you're comfortable. Choose a time when you, you're kind of at low energy, you're not hyper, you can settle your mind. Make sure you have the physical and emotional space that you need. Bring something to write on, and then you're simply going to ask Jesus this question, who do you say that I am, Jesus? A very simple, childlike question. But what you first do is you, you take authority the authority Jesus has given us, authority over our own voice. So I literally do this whenever I do this. I take authority over my own voice right now. I don't want to hear my voice. Then we take authority over the voice of the enemy, and we say, enemy of God, you have no authority to speak right now. I silence you in the name of Jesus. And that authority sticks, because Jesus gave it to us. And then you just invite Jesus, Jesus, will you please tell me who I am? Reveal to me who I am. And then you just wait with no anticipation. It's not a test. It's not a job. It's not an effort. You just wait. I usually tell people, imagine yourself like a catcher's mitt, waiting for the ball to come across the plate and catch it. So if something comes to you in that moment of quiet, write it down. And then uh, show it to someone you trust and say, here's what Jesus showed me. What do you think about this? And let them respond as well. If you get nothing, don't worry about it. It's okay. It's not the time. It's not the right timing for that to happen. Um, you might try it again at a later time. Um, but continue to do this, to put it before him like a little child would, and write down whatever you hear. 
He'll help to identify who you are. So that's episode three. Thanks for listening. Um, Remember, you can find out more information about everything we talked about here today, including the uh, blog post that that Becky mentioned earlier, which is really important to read about infertility. I I really encourage you to, to go read that. So you can find all of that and everything we talked about today in further detail at thejesuscenteredlife.com. Just look for the podcast section in episode three. This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, a podcast from Lifetree. Subscribe to us on iTunes for the latest podcast. We'll talk next time.